Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. Themes in Greek Society and Culture, Chapter 5, Going to Market. The Economy and Society, by Ben Akrig. We are used to talking about something called the economy. In political discussions and the news media, it is usually something that belongs to a single country. For example, the economy of Canada or China's economy. But sometimes we talk about the world economy too. Ancient Greeks, by contrast, did not talk about the Greek economy. This was not because Greece was not a single political unit. They did not talk about the Athenian economy, or the Corinthian economy, or the Spartan economy either. This is perhaps surprising when we remember that the word economy has an ancient Greek origin. Oikonomia literally meant something like household management. Then, as now, people were happy to use the running of a household as a metaphor for running larger communities, because both involve decisions about the allocation of limited resources and the balancing of income and expenditures. The difference between the ancient and the modern term lies in the management part as much as the household part. Economy was something that people did. They ran their households, and they ran their cities, and they might do it well or they might be bad at it. At least some Greeks, unsurprisingly, thought about it in a sophisticated ways. Unlike us, though, they tended not to think of economies as having their own existence, which might need specialized attention or whose success or failure can be judged. As historians of Greece, we often do want to think and talk about economies in the ways we are familiar with. Not doing so is virtually impossible. But we have to start with what Greeks did, how they worked, what they made, and how they managed their resources. Introduction. Almost everything that is important and interesting about the archaic and classical Greek world requires us to talk about its economy. More accurately, given the disunited nature of that world, its economies. Much of the fascination that the ancient Greek world exerts lies in the political institutions that the Greeks developed and debated during this period. The emergence of ideologies of political equality, however, took place against a background of the reality of persistent economic inequalities. These inequalities existed even between the citizens of democratic Athens and the homeo or peers of Sparta. But there were sharper distinctions than these two. In overall economic terms, archaic and classical Greece can be seen as a success story with a growing population that apparently sustained a high standard of living by historical standards. That success, however, was only possible because of the work of people who were excluded from these political institutions, women and the enslaved. Growth. Two basic points are key to understanding ancient Greek economies. First, the world of ancient Greece got larger over time. Second, that world was highly diverse. The Greek world got larger in two ways. First, in 300 BCE, there were many more Greeks than there were in 800 BCE. Second, those Greeks were living in many more places. 
Throughout the Archaic and Classical periods, the Greeks founded new settlements far outside their heartland. Many of those settlements were in Sicily and southern Italy, but Greek cities could also be found around most of the Mediterranean on the coast of what is now France, Spain, Turkey, and North Africa. Cause and effect between the rising number of Greeks and the foundation of new settlements can be hard to disentangle. But the result was not only that Greek settlements were much more widespread, but the areas inhabited by Greeks became more densely populated. Putting numbers on the scale of this change is difficult. There are no detailed population statistics from ancient Greece at any time. However, from what evidence there is, some of it in the written sources, but much more of it in archaeological, it looks as though there must have been at least 10 times as many Greeks overall at the end of the Classical period as there were at the beginning of the Archaic period. In the Classical period, the population of the territory now controlled by the modern state of Greece was almost certainly greater than it would be at any other time before the 20th century. A growing population has profound economic implications. At the most basic level, the more people there are, the bigger the economy must be. More people means that more resources are consumed. For the population to be able to grow, these resources must be obtainable. More people should also mean that there is more labor available. More work can be done and more things can be produced or made. The overall size of the economy is therefore linked in a way to the number of people. A growing population thus results in a growing economy. Such growth becomes more interesting when those people are able to produce more than they need for subsistence. That is, if they are able to generate surplus resources which can be put to a wider variety of uses, like building temples or triremes. Clearly, not everyone in Archaic and Classical Greece lived at a bare subsistence level, even if there must have been some people who lived in the margins of survival. It is also clear that there were, in total, more surplus resources in the Greek world at the end of our period than there were at the start. A key question for current research is how much this surplus was the result of the aggregation of small surpluses being generated by many more people, and how much such an excess reflected the ability of each of those people to generate larger surpluses. Put another way, the question is the extent to which our period saw per capita economic growth, that is, not just more being produced in total, because there were more people, but more being produced per person. There is no suggestion that growth rates would ever have approached the levels that are thought to be normal and desirable in modern nations, or even that they would have been noticeable at the time. Nonetheless, there are indications that from a comparative historical perspective, the Greek police of this period performed well in economic terms. Emphasis on economic performance has only been a prominent feature of scholarship in the last two decades, and to a certain extent it reflects a shift toward formalist approaches and away from substantivist ones. In ancient history, substantivism was widely influential in the 1970s and 1980s. More recently, ancient historians have recognized strengths on both sides of the debate, accepting both that all economies are embedded in their social context to some extent, and that the appropriate use of modern economic theory has great potential for helping us think about the ancient world. The second point, the diversity of the Greek world, is a more familiar one, but still easy to overlook. Of the many hundreds of Greek communities that existed at any given time, no two were quite alike. 
This diversity means that it is difficult to summarize or make general statements about the economy. This diversity existed within cities as well as between them. Even when economic growth did take place, it was far from inevitable that the benefits of that growth would be distributed in ways that would benefit everyone equally. Even in a democratic city like Athens, which fostered an ideology of political equality between citizens, there was no expectation that citizens should be equal in economic terms. Quite the reverse, in fact. Although there was also an expectation that rich citizens should be ready to use their wealth for the benefit of the community. Non-citizens, a large majority of the inhabitants of every city, displayed an even wider degree of variation in their material fortunes. Environment. A particularly important source of diversity for this chapter is the environment in which the Greeks lived. Climate and landscape do not fully determine human history. Of course, if they did, then the economy and society of the Greek world would not have been so very different at different times. Nonetheless, they do set certain important parameters, most obviously in the natural resources that are available, but also in the routes that exist for traveling between regions. The physical world of the Greeks was dominated by the Mediterranean Sea. In general terms, it is possible to talk about a Mediterranean climate where the winters are mild and wet, while the summers are hot and dry. The landscape of Greece itself is mountainous, with relatively little flat, cultivatable land. The complex coastline of the Aegean in particular left few Greek settlements far from the sea at the start of the period, and their later settlements around the Mediterranean tended to be on or close to the coast. A description like this, however, understates the variety of environments experienced by the Greeks. Average temperatures and especially annual rainfall could differ over short distances. Part of the explanation for this lies in the mountainous nature of the terrain itself. An important example of this is the way that the mountains, which run down the length of the Greek mainland, cause a rain shadow to their east. This makes the southeast of the mainland much drier than the west. The western Peloponnese, for example, might expect about 800 millimeters of rain a year, whereas Corsaira and parts of Epirus could expect well over a thousand millimeters. Attica usually has less than 400 millimeters, restricting the range of crops that could successfully be grown there. Temperatures and rainfall also vary according to altitude. It gets cooler and wetter the higher you go, and in much of Greece, dramatic changes of elevation are possible within the span of a day's walk. Everywhere in Greece, too, average rainfall can be a misleading concept, with the actual amounts of rain that fall being different from year to year, impossible to predict, and, again, often highly localized. The spread of Greek settlements over a wider area only increased the environmental diversity they encountered. The Greeks who went beyond the Mediterranean and settled around the shores of the Black Sea encountered a significantly different climate again. The economic effects of this are twofold. First, there were consequences for strategies of agricultural production, which only became more prominent as the population increased. An unpredictable climate encouraged strategies that minimized the risk of a complete failed harvest. This means emphasizing diversification, such as growing a range of crops so that at least some of them would succeed in a given year, and fragmentation, such as growing them in small scattered plots of land rather than large single fields so that a localized disaster would not affect the whole harvest. 
Second, because the regions that were quite close to each other might have very different experiences during the same year, one having a good harvest of a particular crop while a neighbor suffered a poor one, for example, and because one region might be better suited to producing particular resources than another, there were usually strong incentives for interaction and exchange. This applied even in the largest cities. By the standards of archaic and classical polis, Athens had a huge territory, which included a number of relatively fertile plains. But Attica tended to be dry, which meant that it was possible to grow barley successfully, but growing wheat was much riskier. Athenian wine and grapes seemed not to have been of high quality. On the other hand, its olive oil and wool were quite sought after and could be exported. Other Greek cities had other specialties. The silphium, a vegetable valued for both culinary and medicinal purposes, grown in the territory of Serene in North Africa, is a particularly famous example. In the western Peloponnese, the city of Elis was one of the few places in Greece where flax, used for making linen, which was desirable as a clothing fabric and especially important for making ship sails, could be grown. The cultivation of flax needs quite a lot of water and would have been impossible in Athens, which is less than 200 kilometers away. Several cities in the Aegean Islands, including Thassos, Chios, Samos, and Lesbos, produced good wine, which was not only exported, but carefully marketed and protected. Non-agricultural resources, including important metals, were just as unevenly distributed. Athens was fortunate in possessing one of the few exploitable seams of silver in the Aegean region. The other major area of precious metal resources in the Aegean was further to the north. After Philip II of Macedon's capture of the city Cernides, which he renamed Philippi, in 357 BC, the gold and silver mine nearby became a vital asset to his kingdom and for his military ambitions. Most cities had no silver or gold and had to import whatever they needed. Metals for more functional purposes, above all iron, were more widely but nonetheless still unevenly distributed. All of this encouraged communication and interaction much of which was carried out by sea. Where it is possible, water transport has always been the cheapest and most efficient way to move bulky and heavy materials. In a pre-industrial age, it was often also the fastest. The Greek world was bound together above all by networks of maritime communication. Writing was another communications technology that became extremely important over the period under review here. The story of the reintroduction of literacy to the Greeks is beyond the scope of this chapter, but it is one whose context is precisely that of the expansion of the Greek world that begins the Archaic period. At that time, the Greeks were engaging in existing networks, driven at least in part by the desire to find new resources, above all metals as well as farmland. The Greek alphabet was based on that used by the Phoenicians. In the Archaic period, the Phoenicians, from their cities along the coast of the Levant, were traveling and trading across the Mediterranean. They were important competitors and sometimes collaborators for the Greeks. The original purpose for the adoption and adaptation of the Phoenician alphabet for writing down the Greek language is obscure. Undoubtedly, however, the usefulness of writing for carrying out commercial transactions quickly became apparent. By the time the earliest surviving letters are written at the end of the 6th century BCE, it is clear that literacy was helping individuals and communities to communicate and exchange knowledge in ways that made the exchange of commodities much easier. A diverse landscape 
and an unpredictable climate are essential backgrounds to the economies of the Greek world. But they are not the whole picture. At different times of history, the same landscape and a similar climate were the backdrop to very different economies. We need to look now at how the Greeks acted against that backdrop. Household economies. The household was seen in antiquity as the basic building block of large communities. It is also true that most economic activity in the Greek world took place in the context of the household. The economic concerns of cities were, while significant in scale, restricted in scope. Firms, companies and corporations of the kind whose activities are so important in modern economies barely existed at all. To the extent that they did exist, and a persuasive case can be made for thinking in this way about banks and classical Athens, there was little distinction between them and the household and family structures of the men who ran them. Work and the household. A household consisted of both people and property. At the core of the household lay the family. As in most societies, different tasks were thought to be appropriate for men and women. By and large, work outside the home, including farming and engaging in the civic life of the community, was thought to be for men, while work inside the home, childcare, food preparation, and the making of textiles and clothes, was for women. In practice, things were more complicated, however. Open involvement in politics and warfare was indeed mostly limited to men, but roles within a household could not always have conformed to rigid ideological requirements. Especially in poorer households, the labor of female members would often have been too valuable not to use outside the home. In many farming households, peak times of, of labor, like the harvest, would, out of necessity, have seen women deployed in the fields. In those households that did not have farms big enough to support the family, women might have to resort to other kinds of economic activity outside the home. In wealthier households, the labor of family members was supplemented by that of enslaved workers. Exactly how widespread the ownership of enslaved persons was remains difficult to determine, and clearly there were differences over time and between cities, with some, such as Thathos and Chios, seeming to be more dependent on enslaved workers than others. However, it seems clear that in classical Athens, where, as usual, we have the most evidence, owning an enslaved person was considered a normal expectation for a citizen. Not being able to afford one could be cited as a symptom of quite extreme deprivation. On the other hand, only the wealthiest citizens could afford to own sufficient enslaved workers that they did not themselves have to work at all and could concentrate full-time on other pursuits, such as a career in politics. Most owners would have used enslaved workers to supplement rather than fully replace their own labor. They would have worked alongside them, whether that was in the fields or in some kind of craft production or other activity. In every city, there was a strong link between owning land and citizenship. In most cities, this meant that only those who owned land worth more than a certain value could be citizens. Democratic Athens was unusual in having no such qualification for citizenship. But even there, few citizens would have owned absolutely no land. Furthermore, the link between land ownership and citizenship was preserved at Athens by restricting the right to own land outright to citizens. Non-citizens living within Attica had to rent or lease property instead. A typical household would then include, in addition to its human members, a house and usually some farmland. Whether they were in the countryside or in a town, most Greek houses seem to have shared broadly similar layouts. 
A typical Greek house had a courtyard at its center. The courtyard would have been the location for much, if not most, of the work carried out within the home. Many courtyards had a portico or small colonnade for when shelter from the elements was required. Most tasks could also have been moved indoors with little difficulty. Few rooms in Greek houses seem to have been restricted to single purposes. Spaces that served as sleeping quarters at night were available for different functions during the day. The archetypal work performed within the home and by women, and considered appropriate for women of virtually every status, was textile production, the spinning of wool into thread, and its weaving into cloth. The emphasis on this kind of work in literary and artistic representations has a strong ideological and symbolic component, but its economic significance should not be underestimated. Households were not all self-sufficient in clothing, but the production of cloth and clothes for exchange or sale outside the home was an obvious way to supplement household income. Outside the home was the productive landscape that was men's main sphere of economic action. Ideally, a household would possess enough land that it could be functionally self-sufficient. Obviously, complete self-sufficiency would be impossible for any household or even for any city. Self-sufficiency in this context meant that a household had enough surplus to exchange for what it could not produce itself and could survive a bad harvest or two without incurring excessive dependence on others. In practice, and allowing that the productivity of a given area of land could be highly variable, such self-sufficiency would typically have required a farm of around 5 hectares. While this may have been a typical farm size for citizens in many cities, and perhaps for those who could afford the equipment to fight as hoplite soldiers, some people would have owned much larger estates. Many have had much smaller ones, especially in densely populated areas like classical Attica, where there was never enough land to go around. The literary evidence tells us much more about practices in the farm, larger farms than the smaller ones. Food and Agriculture In discussions of ancient Greek agriculture, it is common to refer to a Mediterranean triad of crops, cereals including varieties of both wheat and barley, grapes, mainly for wine production, and olives. To focus on these crops is to oversimplify, but it is not completely misleading. Virtually every Greek city was located in areas where the cultivation of cereals and grapevines was practical. Few, mostly those around the coast of the Black Sea, were in areas where olives could not be grown. Growing and processing these crops was the heart of the economies of the Greek world. Most people would have spent most of their time processing and maintaining adequate supplies of them. The processing aspect is important. This involved large but unavoidable energy inputs and tiresome tasks, such as grinding grain, that are now heavily mechanized, would inevitably have fallen to women, with negative consequences for their status in society. A typical Greek diet was heavily reliant on cereals for both calorie and protein requirements. For most men, and perhaps women and children too, the consumption of wine would have made a significant contribution of calories as well. Black table olives preserved in salt were an important staple for the poor. More highly processed green olives were favored by the wealthy. Olive oil, perhaps surprisingly to us, seems not to have been a particularly important dietary staple. Oil was certainly valued for culinary purpose and as a garnish, but it was much more expensive to produce than table olives. It also had a large range of non-dietary uses, 
for which it was indispensable, including its use in bathing, but also as a base for perfumes, cosmetics, and medicines, as a lighting fuel, and as a general purpose lubricant. All these uses, of course, increase the economic value of oil and the importance of its trade. The symbolic importance of these three crops is also clear. Because they required careful and deliberate cultivation, and because their fruits required processing before they could be consumed by humans, they stood for a particular way of life, settled, peaceful, and civilized. Each was identified as the gift of a different important god, Demeter for cereals, Dionysus for grapes, Athena for the olive, in a way that other crops were not. It would be wrong, however, to keep too tight a focus on the triad. Not every Greek city was able to produce these crops with equal facility. All Greeks valued them, and they were farmed almost everywhere. But by the classical period, few, if any, cities could entirely count on production within their own territory. The diversity of the landscape and the variability of the climate encouraged exchange between communities of even these basic staples. It also encouraged a degree of specialization in the production of agricultural products so that higher value crops could be sold to pay for imported staples. There was a vast array of other important agricultural products too. Beans and lentils must have been nearly as important as the triad, even if they lacked the glamour of a specific divine association. Many other kinds of fruits and vegetables were grown and gave variety to the diet. Large-scale pastoralism was rare in archaic and classical Greece, but animals were nonetheless reared in significant numbers. Meat was not an important part of Greek diet in terms of its contribution to nutrition, but nor was it completely absent. Animal sacrifice was a central component of religious ritual, and most sacrifices involved the killing and consumption of domestic animals. These animals had to come from somewhere. Their total numbers must have been significant, even if most Greeks ate meat relatively rarely. Milk was typically not drunk, this was considered barbarous, but was used to make cheese, another important supplement to the cereal-based diet. Beyond agriculture. Animals also provided the only available alternative to the use of human muscle power. Oxen, mules, and donkeys were indispensable for transport, whether as pack or draft animals. Horses were more of a luxury, principally because of the expense of feeding them, and had few strictly practical economic rules. Nonetheless, they too must have been raised in significant numbers for riding, including as cavalry mounts, and for chariot racing. And where land was short, they would have been imported. Athens, at its 5th century BCE height, must have had horses that numbered in the thousands, even though raising so many was beyond the capacity of its own territory. For cooking and heating, firewood would have sufficed in some areas, but ideally, charcoal was used. Charcoal was also essential for the production of ceramics and for metallurgy. Many cities, Athens above all, demand from all silver mines alone would have been huge at periods of peak production, would have had a voracious appetite for fuel of this kind. It could not always have been obtained locally, which would have provided yet more incentives for exchange. The rich material record shows us that there was plenty of manufacturing activity in the Greek world and the written record flushes that picture out. The widest variety of products would be found in the largest cities. In Athens, there were craftsmen making everything from furniture to perfume, from armor to wheels, from musical instruments to tack for horses, as well as pots and statues. 
all kinds of people, citizens, free non-citizens, and enslaved persons, were involved in these activities, many of which would have been full-time occupations. Wealthier investors could afford to own workshops staffed entirely by enslaved workers. The larger craft workshops could not have been contained within the master's actual home, but those people who constituted them were still part of his household. Cities also provided opportunities for both retail and services. By their nature, these activities leave little archaeological trace. Simple shop units can sometimes be identified as part of houses and incorporated into some classical stores, but what they sold is harder to determine. Buying and selling must often have happened at the more ephemeral stalls and booths. Written sources tell us about all kinds of sellers of food and drink, retailers of a variety of commodities and objects, from books to needles to honey to medicines, and providers of service from musical performers to hairdressers, midwives, teachers, bathhouse keepers, and money changers. The existence of these kinds of occupations is significant. It shows that agriculture was productive enough to support a relatively large number of people in occupations other than farming, and that food was available both because agricultural productivity was high and because of the interconnectivity which allowed at least some Greek cities to draw on the agricultural resources of the wider world. The concrete reality behind abstract discussions of trade, exchange, and communication was the activity of not just traders and sailors and shipwrights, but many others. The scale and profitability, but also the potential risk of maritime trade, meant that there was an extensive service sector to support commerce alongside a vibrant shipping industry. At the most basic level, there were providers of basic services like accommodation and ports. At the other end of the scale, there were financial institutions to connect investors with ship captains and agents. Again, the physical remains of this activity are not spectacular, at least on shore. The abundance of ancient shipwrecks is another story. Even the most important banks seem to have operated with little more than a table. Nonetheless, their functions were sophisticated and their importance to the economies of classical cities was potentially very great. City Economies A city was much more than a collection of households. There were at least two physical features that were essential to any city, each of great economic importance. Every city had at least one agora, a meeting place, and no city would be complete without sanctuaries for the gods. An agora was, in most cities, nothing more than a defined open space within the city. An agora was not necessarily, or even primarily, an economic space. It was where citizens would gather and meet for any purposes they needed to, making it a political space in a very broad but important sense. Rather like the spaces within Greek houses, the public space of the agora could be used for a variety of purposes by different people at different times. Like modern shopping centers, it could be a convenient location for socializing as well as more serious or formal meetings. That, of course, meant that it was also a natural space for economic activity and exchange between citizens, which in turn made it the natural space to go to for visitors to the city, such as merchants with goods to sell or who were looking to buy. The Agora was therefore likely to become an important marketplace as a consequence of its political functions. It is even more difficult to separate the public and the political from the religious in a Greek city. As a marked-out space for public and communal action, an agora also closely resembled a religious sanctuary. 
It might then be the setting for ritual activity as well as a marketplace in a way that would be quite alien to a modern shopping mall. The reverse is also true, however. A city's religious cults and sanctuaries had economic significance of their own. Some of the sources of that significance are obvious. The monumental temples that remain such potent symbols of ancient Greek civilization represented huge investments of resources. We are well informed about some aspects of these construction projects because the details were important enough sometimes to be permanently inscribed on stone. Building inscriptions for the temple complex at Epidaurus and at a number of sites in Athens survive, at least in fragmentary form. These inscriptions provide invaluable information on the cost for labor materials and the organization of the project and their workforce. Once the buildings were complete, the sturdy constructions of stone temples, when most domestic buildings were mainly constructed of mud and brick and timber, made them useful as treasuries for communal wealth. The treasures stored up in temples and sanctuaries did not lie idle, however. Sanctuaries were often happy to make loans both to their cities and to private individuals, at a profit, and so perform some of the functions of a bank. For the financial support of their cults, sanctuaries often also owned land. Typically, this would be leased out to private individuals. Military expenditures of various kinds were likely to be the biggest drain on a city's resources. This would be especially true if the city had aggressive ambitions. Operating a trireme fleet was ruinously expensive, and so was maintaining sieges. Even where this was impractical or undesirable, maintaining a city's own defenses and military forces was an expensive business. Where did cities get the money to spend in these ways? Direct taxation was not heard of, but tended, at least in cities that were not ruled by tyrants, not to be imposed on citizens. Where possible, the problem was approached instead by placing expectation on the wealthier citizens that they should meet demands for public expenditure directly out of their own pockets. Liturgies, literally meaning public works, involve cash expenditures by private citizens, especially on public festivals. But in 4th century BCE, Athens, liturgies also supported the navy. Individuals earned the intangible but not insignificant reward of honor and gratitude of one's fellow citizens for such liturgies, at least in theory. In democratic Athens, it seems that rather than gratitude as such, what the wealthy seemed to have gotten in exchange was some measure of security against accusations of being anti-democratic. In times of crisis, one-off contributions of cash might be required too in the form of Isophora payments, a kind of property tax levied on the richest citizens. Some things were beyond the capacity of even the wealthiest citizens acting together to pay for or did not provide sufficiently glamorous rewards. In the 5th century BCE, Imperial Athens was able to ask or demand cash contributions or tribute from its allied or subject cities of the Delian League, in addition to the revenues derived from the silver mines. More commonly, though, cash had to be raised by other means, one of the most common of which was the imposition of indirect taxes, such as sales taxes and customs dues on goods entering or leaving a harbor or marketplace. There was relatively little attempt anywhere to build a revenue-raising bureaucracy. Instead, the city would sell or auction the right to collect taxes or the right to exploit mineral resources in a certain area for a fixed sum and let private contractors do the work and assume any necessary risk. 
minting their own coinage provided a further means of raising revenue that became available to cities in the late Archaic period onward. Coin money was not a Greek invention. The first coins seem to have been minted by the kings of Lydia, the kingdom that dominated Western Asia Minor for most of the Archaic period in the middle of the 7th century BCE. These coins were made of electrum, a naturally occurring alloy of silver and gold. The fact that proportions of the two metals were naturally variable and difficult to determine probably contributed to the emergence of the notion of a guarantee of their value, gold content being established by a central authority. That in turn meant that the authority concerned could make a profit on the minting of the coins by guaranteeing the coins at a higher level of gold content than they actually contained. This opportunity was not missed by later authorities, even when, in the middle of 6th century BCE, coins were minted in pure silver. In this case, the overvaluation was usually one of weight, rather than the purity of the metals. Greek silver coins were typically of a very high level of fineness. Again, the first silver coins were Lydian, but a number of Greek cities soon started to mint them as well. Coins were not necessary for the emergence of a monetized economy. Much of the Near East and Archaic Greek cities themselves were able to manage similar functions with unminted silver bullion, which could be cut up into chunks and weighed out as necessary. Coins, however, provided real advantages and convenience. At a basic level, these advantages are easy to imagine. Counting out coins is much more straightforward than cutting up and weighing small pieces of metal. Having a single kind of object that could be used as a measure of value as a store of value and a means of exchange in itself, and which could also be used as a means to express a community's identity and prestige, proved to be irresistible to many Greek cities. Not every city actually minted its own coins, however, with many apparently content to use the coinage minted by other cities. Summary In some ways, the economy of archaic and classical Greece was quite unremarkable. As in other pre-industrial societies, agriculture dominated and ensuring an adequate supply of food was the main economic priority of most individuals and all communities. The basis for both production and exchange remained individual households. Firms and corporations as we know them did not exist. Cities had some important communal economic concerns, but their expenditures were dominated by military spending and public building projects. Although they were sometimes prepared to make interventions in the food supply, These interventions focused on encouraging particular activities by private individuals rather than creating the means for direct state action. Few spectacular technological innovations were seen in this period, although the enthusiastic adoption of coined money by the Greeks would have important consequences for later periods. Most of the time, most people were able to get enough to eat, even though the population grew many times larger over the course of this period, and Greece was not particularly well endowed with agricultural land. This was a significant achievement. It was possible partly because of the possibility of exchanging goods, including agricultural staples between different regions, both within and outside the Greek world. At the same time, significant surpluses were generated that could be put to other purposes, which included most everything that is distinctive about Greek civilization. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.